and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Dearest listeners and watchers, I am Carolina Toth, and this is the Level Up Engineering Podcast. I interview engineering leaders bi-weekly, and I'm really glad you are here with us today. I have another amazing guest who is going to join us for a conversation about culture. Um, but before we get into that, please help me welcome Dave Yeager, the Director of Data Infrastructure at Recurve. Glad to be here. This is exciting. It's a great podcast, so I'm pleased to be here. We are so happy to have you here. Um, and without further ado, please uh, give us a little bit of insight as to what we should know about you if some of our listeners don't know you at all. I've been in the software engineering industry for about 20, 20 years or so. Uh, background very much in large, very, very large organizations. I did some work at Lockheed Martin, then I did some work at Boeing, uh, then I did some work at uh, BlackRock for a number of years, about 12 years, uh, when BlackRock was, uh, you know, you never want to call BlackRock small, but certainly <laughs> when I was there, when I started there, it was small compared to its competitors. Uh, the Wilmington, Delaware office I worked in uh, really just had a couple floors worth of people in it. And when we left, when I left, it had expanded to 800 people across uh, two different buildings in that Wilmington office. BlackRock was a great place to work. Um, and now for the last seven plus years, I've been working at an organization called Recurve, which is trying to solve uh, the carbon emission, uh, global warming problem by trying to align incentives. I always left, when I left BlackRock, I wanted to know, is there a way that I could get the portfolio managers that I've worked with here at this company to want to invest in things like energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, how would I get them to invest in that the same way they would invest in a bond or an equity or uh, you know any kind of financial instrument? And this is the only thing I've seen so far that you know kind of makes some sense to me. And uh, so it's been it's been really interesting. I've been uh, I was one of the original five uh, folks that was kind of uh, at Recurve when we got the thing going. Uh, Recurve has grown to over 70 people now and it's a uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Congratulations. I'm I'm happy to hear that it's always nice when when people share some um good uh, stories like that and I'm I'm hoping to hear more about that um within sure. our conversation today. So, as I hinted on that before, 
today our conversation is about culture and how to fix um, a ruined work culture. And and um, I would like to say, let's start by defining what we should call a work culture for the purposes of our conversation and um, and how we should define it when it's broken or ruined. I think that's a great place to start. Uh, you know, when I look at culture, culture in business or anywhere, even sports, is really interesting in the sense that successful organizations always point to their culture as an advantage even if the culture is kind of objectively terrible, right? Um, there's plenty of organizations that you can think of, especially in the tech industry that you can point to over the last couple decades, where you can say, wow, that is a really successful organization in terms of their bottom line. Uh, their shareholders are very happy. They're making massive profits, but boy, it's a terrible place to work, right? You can, you can point at that very easily. It's always interesting to me with sports teams, right? Uh, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. Every baseball team that wins the World Series or wins the championship always says, well, we've just got a great culture here. And, you know, I, I've always been interested in that in the sense that, like, gosh, you can be, it seems like you can be successful even if your culture isn't great. So, like, that being the case, what is the value, you know, kind of of culture? And the way I've looked at it is this, is that, if you look at kind of the history of organizations, the ones that have terrible culture can be successful, but over a much shorter time horizon. You can look at examples like, you know, kind of throughout like uh, throughout the last couple of decades in particular, where you've got organizations that rose very, very quickly, became extremely successful, but then had big tapering offs because they, it was revealed that their culture was terrible. It became harder to attract talent and keep it. Um, so I always find it interesting uh, to, to talk about it and culture to me always has to evolve. You have to let new people when they come into the company, bring their own spark to the, to the equation. Uh, but that's to me is why, you know, kind of the one aspect of culture I think is the most valuable that has to be preserved is that culture of vulnerability. And what I mean by that is the ability to make mistakes, especially in tech. I love that place, and um, I am also a big, big um, advocate of uh, of being vulnerable in the workplace. And I find that it's probably especially hard um, when the majority of the workforce is usually men, especially in smaller companies. Um, but I also find that it is sometimes easier to to mold the culture when it is a smaller company. Um, you have you have experience with, with large and smaller organizations. Um, which one do you think is easier to, to build a, a good culture in? Boy, that's a great question. I've been thinking about this. It's a perfect question. I, I think that when you're first starting out, culture is easier to steer right? Obviously with a smaller organization, because you can have an actual global company culture. Um, the larger you get though, as an organization, you can have some ideals about your culture, but every team is going to start to emerge with its own culture in large organizations. We're already seeing that at Recurve, and I don't think that's a bad thing, right? You know, like I think the way that like potentially the business development side and that team 
you know, kind of runs their day to day. It's okay for that to be different than the way the, the engineering, the technology team runs its day to day and thinks about their culture. But you want to have some unifying aspects that you can go and recognize anywhere you go in the organization. And so I think to your point, the smaller the organization is, the easier it is to kind of have a more homogenous culture, something that like, you know, has a, carries a lot of the same aspects that can be good and bad, but then the bigger you get, the more it starts to change. And that's where having some, just a couple of key cultural values uh, can really help. And this is, that's another reason why I like the vulnerability one. I, whenever I'm talking to folks that may be thinking about joining the organization or interviewing or, or welcoming people on board when they join, I, I ask them, you know, I, I hope you can bring something new to our culture and, and help us help our culture evolve. We never want to be stagnant. But the one thing I ask people is, can you help me preserve this one thing, this culture of vulnerability? Because I want recurve to kind of always be a place where it's possible to make mistakes and not be punished. We learn from our mistakes more than we learn from our successes. And Yes, of course, you make the same mistake like five times in a row, we're going to have to have a conversation. But that first couple times a mistake happens, that's how you learn. And when you're in a, a smaller company trying to, you know, a startup in particular, mistakes are going to happen and you have to have systems on the technology side and processes in place to make sure that people are okay putting their hand in the air and saying, yeah, I really messed this thing up, but I want to talk about it um, so that everybody can learn from that. So, yeah, to your question. Certainly smaller, you can keep everything a little more, everybody can kind of approach things with a, with a very similar culture. But as you get bigger, I think you have to let different business units and teams emerge with their own special cultures mm -hmm. and try to keep one thing, one thing uniform across the company. And if we can keep vulnerability uniform across Recurve, I'd be very happy. Going through with that train of thought, uh, we haven't spoken about what maybe a culture that isn't healthy would look like and you know without pointing fingers or or naming names could you give us maybe like an example of what you would consider as maybe a toxic work culture or something that isn't healthy so that for the purposes of our conversation we can be on the same page sure absolutely I think that you've got, there's the one metric you people always point to, to like try to figure out like whether a culture is healthy or not is usually retention, right? Employer retention. Um, so that's like kind of your first sign, your first most obvious sign. Hey, do I have a lot of turnover? Do I have a lot of people leaving? Um, it's certainly been my experience that different things motivate different people, right? Especially early in their career, people are going to be attracted to the biggest salary they can get, things like that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that your career, your work is a huge part of your life. Uh, you know, you spend eight hours a day sleeping. You spend eight hours a day, probably more sometimes in a startup working. And that's a huge percentage of what you do. And so for some people, like, you know, just the biggest salary is fine. And that's, and, and that motivates them. But like, especially as people get comfortable in their career, it starts to become much more about like, what am I doing? Am I really enjoying this? And The type of people that are, you know, you can tell a culture is having trouble if you've got lots of people kind of leaving, lots of people looking, 
quiet quitting in particular these days is a real sign of a toxic culture because that means people aren't even willing to discuss the problem that like has them leaving. Um, and so, it, you know, it used to be at least sometimes that you would find out in an exit interview kind of what's going on. But now, you know, these days, I think, uh, you know, kind of with with the with the phenomenon of the quiet quit, which maybe isn't even new, maybe it's just something we have a name for now. Uh, but with that phenomenon in particular, if you have people just leaving and, you know, kind of having already checked out and looking for things, you know, you've got a toxic culture. Certainly an example I can give, uh, you know, without naming names, I can look at, you know, a department um, that I was working with at one point in my career. And I won't, you know, like I said, name any names or point anything out, but you could just, it was the type of situation where folks always worked for themselves and weren't motivated in any way to kind of help each other. The incentives were not aligned to do that. There was no motivation in the way that the success was rewarded to help each other out. You were better off not helping somebody and trying to take the credit for yourself the way the yearly review process worked in that department and the way the metrics were aligned. That's not going to work long-term for the types of people that are going to help your company get better. It can help you short-term in the bottom line and be very good for a year or two for your for your numbers, but it's not going to help your organization mature and be long-lasting. And so that's that's a, that's that's one example. Thank you. I um, I think about a culture a lot um, as as a freelance consultant, and I I want to be of the idea that it's um, there is a perfect fit for like everyone, you know, because there are those people who are more self-centered and want to achieve um, success through their own work. And and maybe those people are the individual contributors. Maybe those people shouldn't be leading teams and such. Um, but I also, I, I like the idea of contributing together and building things together because I think that's what we have organizations for and, and teams for to, to strive for something more than what we only as individuals can bring to the table. And so um, when, when it comes to, you know, like culture, I think it's important for, for companies to define, as you said, who they are and and point to some keywords that they that they associate themselves with like you know for for you guys at recurve it might be uh, vulnerability and and being able to stay vulnerable um what are some other things that you um have used as um behaviors to promote a healthy work culture Sure. So there's an interesting thing that we do, and you know, a number of organizations do this, you know, where kind of when we have our all hands meetings, and we're still small enough where having an all hands meeting once a month is something you can do, uh, you know, without, without, without as much trouble as you might be able to have. If you were a thousand or 10,000 person organization, all hands meetings are tough, uh, you know, <laughs> type of thing you do once a year. Uh, but, you know, Recurve, we're still in the, you know, kind of an employee count in the 70s. So we still have these all hands meetings, you know, kind of every every month. And one of my favorite parts of the all hands is the cheers, uh, cheers and jeers. And, you know, cheers and jeers is an opportunity to call out, you know, 
and give 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 some give some thanks to somebody who helped you out with something. You're not going to get into the cheers section if you're not helping your coworkers in some way. Uh, jeers are lighthearted. They're not meant to be, you know, kind of mean or anything like that. And they can, you know, kind of poke fun a little bit at yourself for a mistake you made, uh, you know, and say, hey, I want everybody to help learn from this. If you have the ability to like, one of the things that that helps do is when your leadership and your management is contributing to that, it demonstrates to others that like, hey, it's okay to, you can, you can also contribute to this. This is like, we're setting the, you, you hope to set an example where like talking about that stuff is okay. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing that I, about culture in general is that like, as a company gets bigger to your smaller and bigger company question, so much of the experience of the culture becomes about the direct manager. So much of it, right? There might be in a very large organization, the culture might generally be okay, but there might be a couple of departments that are really quite bad, very toxic, right? And the reason comes down to, uh, you know, kind of management style. Your experience of a company is so hugely tied to, a, to your manager. And this is part of why I emphasize that culture of vulnerability so much, you know, especially with, with, with folks, if I can, that are coming in to be managers. Manager, management is a bit to me of a sacred duty. People are coming to you and coming on your organization, especially in a startup, and they're taking a risk with their careers. Um, they're handing over, like I said, a huge portion of their life to the idea of what the company is trying to accomplish as much as they hand over, you know, just getting their sleep every night. In the evening, you sleep and you dream. Hopefully, you dream when you come to work, too. It's a huge aspect of what you do. And so... A manager has a sacred duty, I think, to really help guide the career and be an advocate for people on their team. That only works if the alignment of incentives is right for, you know, kind of the manager to act that way, to be that type of person, to have that type of culture that says, yes, let's try this thing, even though I don't know it's going to work out. It's okay if it doesn't. It won't impact your career here. We're going to try it. It's an interesting idea. Let's see if it works. If it doesn't work, it's okay, though. Uh, that's the only way I know of to kind of do the job. There's other ways to manage. Uh, you know, certainly seen them, uh, and they can work. Uh, but the only way I know how to do it is kind of just to, you know, you want to be, you want to bring empathy to the table every day and remember that people are trying to forge something for themselves in their career. They're trying to make their own story. And work is a huge part of that. For sure. And if they don't like the story they're forming... <laughs> they're going to go somewhere else. <laughs> so, so that's a huge part of it. For sure. And I love how you put that in um, quite poetic um, words so that uh, people are handing over a portion of their lives. So if some of our listeners are thinking about, you know, switching to a different company, what would you, what would you advise to them when looking for a company with a, with a good, healthy culture, what are some ways that they can spot, you know, red flags or, or uh, maybe signs of a bad work culture before they have joined the company? Oh, what a great question. Uh, gosh, when I interview, I ask whoever I'm interviewing with to kind of describe the work environment in one word. Um, if you let people describe it in more than that, 
that can be that can be that can be helpful. It's not like it's bad information, but at the same time, if you're forced to limit your description to one word, you're going to pick that word very carefully, and it's going to be the most obvious, most prominent thing, right? You've you've you've, you've probably noticed I've mentioned vulnerability several times. That's kind of the one word for me at Recurve. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that ever were to disappear, if that part of the culture were ever to disappear, it would make me want to start looking elsewhere. Right. Like that's the part, that's one of the aspects I really enjoy about the culture. So often when I'm interviewing, I try to, you know, kind of ask, can you, can you describe it? Can you tell me what the work environment is like in just one word, one word only? If folks have a hard time doing that, that's also a signal, Mm -hmm. right? Because if they're limited to one word, they're really kind of thinking, oh gosh, what word should I pick that isn't going to, you know, kind of sound terrible. Um, That's one, that's one aspect of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that can, that can kind of be a tell. Uh, so that's certainly one of the things I've done in the past is kind of ask about that. And, you know, the other thing I ask about is, you know, kind of what does the yearly review process look like? Now, this one's tougher for when you're new and you're kind of entry, you're, you're getting started in your career. Um, but you can learn a lot by, okay, does this company have a bonus structure? Does it have, you know, kind of what, it, what kind of, what kind of, uh, objectives and key results, uh, you know, kind of thing, are they, are they following? It tells you a lot about kind of how the company works. Uh, bonus structures are fine. I have no, I don't never have a problem with them, but like if they do have a bonus structure, okay, how do the bonuses get awarded? Is it, you go in front of a panel and, or your manager makes arguments for you, or is there an objective list of things that you can tick to like get that bonus? If it's not objective lists of things, that's tricky for me. Because eventually, because then then it's a question of, okay, well, now there's this extra bit of power that one or two individuals have to incentivize behaviors that, you know, kind of they like. And so it, it's, those are things I look for, but it's easy for me to, it's also easier for me to say that. Obviously, when you're trying to get into the job market and get started, you know, you kind of take whatever you, you, you take what you can get and you try to establish yourself and get going. Uh, but those are those are certainly things I ask at this point in my career. I think it's important to also reward, like, Personally, people who are loyal and people who are absolutely who are with the company and consciously work for the culture of that company. So, like, I don't think that it's really good if if someone's bonus is only based on the objective uh, results. Yeah, and maybe if there is a way to reward people for for how much other people like working with them i think that's that's like a sign of a of a healthy culture of course there should be balance in getting things done and being liked but i think i don't think it's healthy when people are only awarded based on the results that they get even when it comes at the cost of you know like their relationships within the team I think you're making a really good point there because one of the things that like always bugs me about bonus structures, I'm not against bonus structures, but like one of the things that sometimes bugs me about it is the way you structure, the way you put together a bonus structure is really tricky to get right to me. I, I, to your point, what if you have somebody who's a tremendous contributor to other people's projects, that's always willing to help, that's always willing to jump in, but they're, they, they might not be the key person on that project. It's not as likely for them to get the credit for the 10 other things they helped 10 different people on, and they delivered one thing themselves, right? Okay, well, wh- how, do you, how do you bonus that person? How do you make sure that that behavior 
where they're willing to help and jump in and assist on things based on what they see as most important, based on what they see as like where they can make the biggest contribution. Uh, how do you how do you measure that? This is what I mean by tricky. And to your point, that's one of the areas where an objective thing can really trip you up. If it's you know kind of a question of what was the key projects that you were the primary responsible person on, that person might only have one, but might have contributed to the success of ten others. So I, I think you're making a really good point there. It's really tricky, and you got to be careful when you have bonus and reward structures how they're structured. And I do agree with you. I do think there needs to be some leeway. But if it, it can't be all the other way either, if it's just a one manager or one person or a panel or something like that that's awarding the bonuses based on argument and subjective discussion over who the best contributor is, immediately bias enters the equation, right? And so it's very, very tricky. It's very, very tricky. I've never. It's, that could be a whole other discussion. There's like bonus structures and things like that. I'd, I've never been able to figure out what the best bonus structure should look like because they all have a little bit of trickiness to them. If you have good people, that's the silver bullet. But, you know, how do you know you have good people, right? Very, very tricky. So. <laughs> right, right. I completely agree with you. And um, going um, forward with your... With your um, vulnerability as a key concept when it comes to your culture um for me what i what i usually point to as what i think is my like key culture fit skill is like a growth mindset and i think it's kind of a similar concept to to vulnerability because a growth mindset says you know like even if you made a mistake you can learn from it rather than define yourself as um, that mistake or or as that uh, person who never makes mistakes. And within that concept, I think it's it's really important for any company to say these are the things that we define as important, and we are gonna base our reward systems around those concepts. So. If it's, you know, like a growth mindset, it it could be, you know, how many projects have you tried to get into this year or whatever? Um, what are some of the things that you have tried and failed and what have you learned based on those, um, based on those um, tryings? And so I think, those are some things that we can give to people who are listening to us um, to to help them decide whether or not the, the company that they are trying to get into um, is similar to what they are expecting. Uh, moving on to when you're in a company, um, what are some signs? Because culture is always, I think, as you said, evolving. Um, what are some things that people can watch out for as individual contributors or as team leaders or as parts of management? What should they be watching out for to keep the healthy um, company culture that they have? There's two main things for me. The first one is when you start to see culture used as a weapon. What I mean by that is the classic, um, we don't do things that way around here. 
right? Like, you know, kind of thing, that kind of mentality. As soon as you start hearing that, you know, you've kind of like gotten off track. Uh, you should always be willing to try things, even potentially things you've tried before, previously, that didn't work. If time has passed, I often say, <laughs> this is something I say sometimes, is that, you know, experience can be a trap. If something I did seven, eight years ago, I tried something and it didn't work, that doesn't mean in different circumstances, in a different time, it won't work now. So once you start hearing things like, we don't do things that way around here, that's kind of a, that's kind of a good sign. A very tangible thing, if you're somebody, uh, you know, kind of in a company, uh, you know, kind of in an, on an individual contributor basis or things like that, if you don't, if you're not having conversations with your manager regularly, that's a bad sign. Okay. Like, you know, that your, that your, that your, that your culture is in trouble. And the reason for that is that a manager's job is to make sure I look at a manager's job as this, right? And we talked about like, you know, kind of helping people guide people's dreams, but like you can tell your man, a manager is doing a good job. If every single person on the team knows whether they're doing a good job or not, if they don't know they're doing a good job, and they're not sure, and it's going to be a surprise next time they have to talk conversation with the manager. Hey, am I like how am I doing? Manager's not doing their manager's not doing their job. Then there needs to be constant conversation, and this is hard, right? Managers, like you know, like anybody else, have a lot of uh, full calendars, right? Especially in startups and you know, kind of very busy organizations, you got a full calendar as a manager, but you have to spend time every week, every two weeks at worst talking to every single person, you know, on your team and making sure they know I prefer every week. Uh, but that can be very challenging with bigger and bigger teams. And, you know, you have to have that conversation with people and let them know, hey, what's going well? What isn't going well? Every single person on a in an organization should know, should be able to answer the question, am I doing a good job? Am I on track for success? Am I on track for that promotion? They should be able to answer that question. It should never be a mystery. And there's a lot of organizations where people just have no idea. I talk to people all the time, you know, just going out to have a chat, have a drink or whatever. And they have no clue whether they're doing a good job or not. They're like, I guess I'm going to find out, uh, you know, at the end of the quarter. Mm -hmm. That's not good. <laughs> that's, that's not good. So that's, again, that, and that allows, you know, kind of bad culture, toxic culture to creep in because somebody can say to you, well, you didn't do X, Y, Z. Well, you never told me that. Well, that's how you're getting measured. Well, how's that fair? Right? right. If I had known that, I would have done things differently. Right, right. I completely agree with you, and uh, and I think feedback is such a such an often disregarded aspect of our lives, and not just in uh, in companies, but also in our private lives. I think um, it takes courage to to give like honest and valuable feedback, but uh, people um, are often maybe afraid for the relationship that they have with that person or the rapport that they have built. And I think it's important to point out that if you work a lot with someone, then there is going to be friction no matter what, because, you know, being, being around a person just gives ample opportunity for friction. But if people just like build up their, their, um, mismatch of expectations or if they build up their their 
hurtful experiences, then then it's just going to get worse. And uh, the other people probably won't know that they have done something wrong. And um, and if they don't talk about that, then um, there's probably not going to be enough room for improvement. So, so at, to your point, I think feedback is one of the most important parts of communications when it comes to an organization. And that's probably the leader's job to give a good example as to how feedback should be given. And so based on that, do you think one manager or one one bad apple is enough for a company culture to take a different route? Or is it is it not enough? I don't think one bad manager in a large company can ruin the whole company culture, but without question, it can ruin the culture of a section of a whole section of of the of the organization. Everybody coming out of that group that is successful is going to carry the same bad cultural outlook, right? Uh, so uh, the worst part about it, the, the thing that makes a bad manager so challenging, right, is that they're going to reward potentially behaviors that you don't want rewarded. And that's just going to exacerbate the problem. Those, they're going to put people in positions where they behave like they do. This is hard, right? This is really hard. I always ask myself, am I doing an okay job? And how do you know, right? To your point on the feedback, if I'm talking to a friend or my wife or something like that, and they're giving me, you know, criticism or feedback or, you know, kind of having some instruction, I trust them. Like, because over time I've built up that level of trust. But if I've got, you know, a new employee on my team, it's, they, they don't trust me on day one. <laughs> it would be crazy to trust me on day one. They don't know me. Uh, it's going to take a lot of time to get that trust if you ever get it. And so what feedback am I really going to get from them that tells me I need to steer things if they don't trust me or they're worried about their career or keeping their job? Getting feedback as a manager is really hard um, for me. And because how do you know you're getting the right feedback, you know, kind of from the people reporting you, there's an imbalance of power there that, you know, kind of suggests that, well, maybe they want to give me good feedback because they're afraid I won't like them anymore, or I won't, you know, uh, I won't, I won't help them in their career. So it can take a lot of time. And so if you've got a bad manager, that's, you know, kind of doing that and then promoting people that have seen those behaviors rewarded, it can definitely get worse. A good manager at a good company, you know, kind of just, it, it really helps people to like advance their career, obviously. But it's hard to know, I think, measuring whether or not somebody's a good manager or not, I think is very challenging. You can only do it by looking at like, how is everybody on this team performing, right? How is everybody on this team performing? Not necessarily what is the manager doing, but right. is everybody on this team, do they have good retention there? Do they help each other? Are the business outcomes good? And to your point, the growth. What things have they tried and didn't work that like now we can learn from as a whole organization? So yeah, it's hard. I did, it, so I don't think one one bad manager can ruin it. Not not right away. But I think over time, mm-hmm. potentially they can, you know, especially in a smaller organization. And if we turn that question around, um, do you think if like if someone went to a company and maybe they haven't researched the company culture well enough 
but perhaps they like the product or they really enjoy the kind of work that they do and they want to turn around the culture. Is one good apple enough? And that's not an expression, but like, you're welcome, uh, everyone. Uh, so is one good apple enough to like turn the entire um apple forest into good apples or or how do you think one person should go about changing certain aspects of a culture well i think that certainly as you get as a company gets bigger the best you can do as a manager in a really really large company is to your point kind of mind your own barrel of apples mm-hmm. uh you know they have the barrel of apples can be shrunken size to your team, try to make sure there aren't any bad apples in there. That's the best you can kind of do in a big organization. In a small organization, you can have a little more influence. You can have conversations and say, hey, to another manager, what's going on? You know, let's let's talk about what's happening. Uh, you know, kind of with your team. You've got a lot of you've got you've got a lot of turnover. Um, maybe there's some lessons we can talk to about each other. But you know ultimately One good manager, I think one bad manager has a lot more influence than one bad manager, or than one good manager, to your point. I think it's really hard. A good manager can make sure that their team is taken care of, whereas a bad manager can have impacts that can kind of spread uh, across. And so how do you identify bad managers? Yeah, that's That's something that definitely has always been on my mind, tricky. How do I know I'm not one, right? To our to a previous point, how do I ever know I'm not, how do I ever know I'm not a bad manager? It's hard to, hard to know. These things are tricky because of the way, like you said, feedback, getting feedback from managers is hard, right? You can get the feedback from your peers, but your peers as managers aren't necessarily dealing with the day-to-day interactions that, you know, kind of individual contributors are dealing with. And so you can only look at, hey, are the outcomes good here? Are people staying, Right. Are people staying here at this at this organization? To your point you made earlier, hey, people will stay because like, hey, maybe they like the work. They might hate the manager, but maybe they like the work. Maybe the work is interesting enough that it outweighs it. Maybe the pay is good enough that it outweighs it. Vice versa. Maybe they could make more money elsewhere, but they like working with this person in this group. So it's really hard. There's a lot of variables and it takes a ton of work to really know. Um But again, you you asked a really good question earlier. How do you identify? You, t- you, you keep your eye peeled for two main, for those two main things, right? The we don't do things that way around here, uh, you know, as one of them. And and do I get to meet with my manager regularly? Does everybody know they're doing a good job or not? You keep your eye out for those two things, and you're probably on the right track. And then there's other things to look at. Right, right. And you made me you made me think of um, one thing as a manager. If you If you get feedback that maybe questions how you have viewed yourself up to that point, I think it's really good to go ahead and maybe like feel for that feedback in other areas of your team or in other areas of the organization. And and even if it turns out that only one person was, you know, like in a in a bad state of their life and that's why they gave you feedback that wasn't so great on you. I think it's important to always show that you appreciate the feedback no matter the kind so people won't be afraid for their position or for their bonus as we talked about or for whatever reason um, to give you 
the honest feedback that they think um, would help you grow as a manager. What are some other practical steps that you think managers can take to make sure that they create a thriving work environment and and the healthy culture? Yeah, if we're talking to this is a this is an engineering podcast, we can talk about like some tech stuff. Uh, you know, on the one hand, obviously. Uh, when you're talking about like an, creating an area where it's like, you know, people are allowed to make mistakes and things like that. There's a reason engineering has grown up with like three, three stage deployment, you know, dev, test, prod, that type of stuff, continuous integration. But I want to point out one thing about like kind of continuous integration that I think is interesting is that continuous integration <laughs> is one of those things that only works if the tests are good. I'm not telling anything, anybody anything they don't know here, but it is fascinating to me when an organization gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the tests become an obstacle, right? And so then they're not, they're no longer serving the purpose of this is going to help prevent mistakes or it's going to teach me about mistakes. How many times can people tell stories about, you know, kind of an engineer trying to get a release through some tests they don't understand failing, and then they go in as part of the release and just change that test, Right. Uh, how often have you, how often have people heard those stories? That's a good example of like, you know, okay, well, the problem here, we haven't solved the problem of like making mistakes and being vulnerable with technology. We've got the technology, but the process isn't good, right? There should be a capability if that test is failing, who is the person, who's the group I can go to? I don't understand this test. I don't understand what it does. I don't understand why it's failing. I don't understand why I should care. Can somebody explain it to me? That should be a question that's okay. Not the release needs to go out on Friday, so the tests need to pass. That's a great kind of example of where the culture is warped one way or the other. If the goal is to push the thing out the door by Friday, the tests aren't going to be updated in any way that's meaningful, and nobody's going to learn anything. They're just going to get rid of the test, or they're going to change the way the test works. If the culture is good, they have an opportunity, okay, this thing's going to slip a week, or it's going to slip to Monday, or it's going to slip to Tuesday, but we're all going to f- learn why this test exists and what's going on here. That's a good example all right, of something that's like a really practical process approach. Um, how often do people you know, institute, okay, you got to, in order to merge this code, there has to be a pull request. And you know, one or two people who are senior developers have to approve it. Okay, great. How many senior developers, and it's okay, to be honest, we can all be vulnerable here. How many senior developers go in and read every line of that code? They're busy. They look and see, hey, did the test pass? Okay, great. Approve, and I'm moving on with my day. All right? If that's the way your pull request process works, nobody's learning anything. Like, the way a pull request process should work is somebody who, the, the, the developer who did that, who's getting the approval for that person, that should be an opportunity for them to talk about how they did the thing. Not, here's the pull request, go look at it, press approve or not. Uh, I, I don't love that. Like, it should be an opportunity for people to come in and say, hey, I'm going to block, you know, 15, 20 minutes of your time, and I'm going to walk you through this, right? That's how a pull request should work. Uh, so those are practical things that can be done. And, you know, they're, they're not new ideas, uh, you know, no, nothing revolutionary here, but it's so easy to slip into the habit of the process is I need to approve this thing. But the process doesn't do any good if nobody's learning anything from it. Thank you so much. And 
I can already hear um, former business decision makers speak to me saying, you know, like, how how is that good for the business? We don't have time for this. We need to we need to deploy. We need to do the release. Um, what would you say to those people, or or what's your kind of general comeback? I would say to those folks, look, I'm not going to tell anybody how to run their business. They're going to have a better idea than me. That's why they're in that business. Um, but you have to ask yourself, what happens next time? It's a question of, am I going to meet this deadline and make this target, or am I going to make the next seven targets? Because the way you're, it's really just a little bit, it requires a little bit of forward thinking. And I understand the pressures of the day-to-day, don't get me wrong. Like, hey, I work in a, I work in a Series B organization, right? The pressures are real all the time, right? You know, oh my gosh, we got to meet this number. Oh my gosh, we got to get this release out. Okay, no problem. I get all that. But at the same time, if you want to get better and you want your business to last past that deadline in a meaningful way, sometimes you need to think about what it is you're actually accomplishing, right? Start with the, as my, as my own boss likes to say, uh, start with the why, right? Why are we doing this? To meet a deadline is a bad answer. If the deadline has a very compelling why behind it, we get a million dollar bonus if we deliver this at this time. Hey, okay, now 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 we're having a conversation, and we're and maybe we'll debrief after. But if it's just because that's the deadline, that's a terrible reason. It doesn't make any. So you just got to think about what's going on. Yeah, I'm not going to tell anybody how to run their business. But if you're pushing a deadline for the sake of a deadline, it's pretty obvious something's not right. Thank you so much for saying that and. I also feel the need to say that deadlines are usually, you know, just arbitrarily made by people so that we have them. But um, if it's not the, the moon landing or or some something like that, then then the deadline can probably be pushed out um, a few days, making sure that exactly the, yeah, and I'm not tests pass. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So when when um, it comes to you, I think you have a very well, I think you have a very um, atypical um, career path because what I have um, found is that usually when people are young, they will go to uh, the startups and they will pour their soul into <laughs> their true. work. And then and then as they grow older, they want like more stable jobs with bigger companies, with security and health insurance and, you know, like perhaps like a premium class on airfares and whatnot. Right. Um, but, <laughs> right. but you seem to have, you know, walked the opposite way. And I'm just curious about your philosophies when it comes to building the organizational culture within your company now. You have you have pointed us in directions, but but what is your why and and how how can you tie that into your day in and day out? Well, I'll say this, my why definitely comes down to uh, one of the things that really makes me excited in my career is, you know, the potential to someday report to somebody who I once worked with. 
I, I really get excited about that. There's a number of people I've worked with in my career that I would be thrilled to report to, right? Over 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 the last over the last twenty years. There's people that are uh, working with me right now, uh, you know, that I would be thrilled to report to them someday. That's kind of my dream. If that if that can happen, then it means that okay, I probably maybe that's a sign that all this stuff we're talking about that the that maybe I was a good manager. Um, still enjoy the technical aspect of things. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I still like getting my hands dirty and you know writing code on a daily basis. But the managing stuff is interesting, and you can accomplish so much you know, with a team that you can't accomplish alone. The stuff that motivates me in terms of, you know, I'm very privileged in my career to, you know, I live in Wilmington, Delaware. It's a great, great, great little, great little place, but it isn't that expensive, you know, kind of compared to other places to live. Uh, That's one of the benefits of remote work, certainly. Uh, I've got a lovely wife who's very successful. And so, like, I have a lot of privilege behind me, for sure, that allows me to take those types of chances. I don't have financial obligations to children or kids or anything like that, trying to put them through school or support them. So it's easier, make no mistake, I have a lot of, I have a lot of privilege behind me that allows me to, to kind of take those types of chances rather than working for, and that's what, that's what motivates me. I think it's really interesting. I love seeing, there's nothing I like better in my career than, like, working with entry-level developers. Gosh, I love that. Especially people who have gone through like code academies and things like that that are looking to change their lives, right? Code academies sometimes get this reputation of, you know, these boot camps. Oh, they're giving them the bare minimum and like they're not that useful. We can put them into, gosh, I think of it totally the opposite way. Somebody who's willing to go through that type of thing really wants to change their lives and change their career. You can test people, you know, in an entry level way to see if they've got the ability to do the job right? You can always figure out, can this person do the job? Do they have the technical skills? And then it becomes a question of, you know, are they going to be able to do it over time? But man, I love working with entry-level developers. They bring such interesting ideas and such enthusiasm, especially people who are going through career changes. They, they approach the problem as an opportunity to change their lives and change the type of work they're doing. And they just take it so seriously and so passionately. Um, and it keeps me motivated. It keeps me motivated. It makes me continue to be excited. You know, even at 45, all this time later, what an industry, right? That's one of the wonderful things about tech. All industries change over time, but boy, does tech change fast. And you're all, the thing you're working on, the thing you're working on, you were working on 10 years ago, probably is obsolete by now. Oh, it's for sure. It's just so interesting. For sure. For sure. I also, in what you said about um, people who are changing their their professions to developing, I think... It is very uh, much of of a challenge to maybe have an established career and be willing to say, okay, I'm going to be a junior in software development because I want to get into that type of work or because I want to make that kind of money or whatever. And, and it just really made me think about what you said. As a manager, people are putting their lives into your hands in 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 some way and and they they look to you for for helping them accomplish their dreams and you you are if if you are a manager you are sort of in position to actually help people change their lives um what would you what would you say to our listeners who are who are managers and 
and want to create a really healthy work culture within their team um and and maybe who want to be because you already mentioned you know some things about um being open to feedback but but people who would who would want to to create a strong healthy culture within the team there are some things i do that are just personal habits that i learned from a wonderful boss i had uh you know previously in my career who somebody i still keep in touch with who i just still you know like i said i've been very privileged been very fortunate in my career to run across uh such opportunities to work with people who are really all who, who have approached their their job with vulnerability and and learn that as a way as a success for as a habit for success i i think that some of the things i do is i tell everybody all the time if there's any time on my calendar take it you don't need to ask me just take it my calendar i block off the time i need to write code or do software development in chunks you know a day or two in advance if any time is ever available i you do not you do not need to ask me just go in block the time off the calendar and it's yours right in the working hours that's one thing i do and that's great because especially in a remote company it's not easy for people to just walk by the office door and knock and see like hey is it okay if i if we have a quick chat that's 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 hard um so having some way to kind of mimic that hey my my door's open you can see the calendar's open go ahead and put an hour block on it put two hours on if two hours open like that's what the time is there for grab it all right if the day before that time's open i might block it for for focused time to be able to write some code but any open time grab it the other thing as i said before is that like i you, you need to have even if it's hard even if you've got a huge team you need to be having those one-on-one conversations even if there's no kind of agenda driving it right away you need to be able to say okay like every week we're sitting down for 45 minutes half hour 45 minutes the longer the better and that person comes in and you can start with hey anything you want to talk about and most times they're going to say no right it's like you know the old thing when the kids come for hey how was school today anything happened nothing well a million things probably happened right <laughs> it's just the same thing with you know somebody who's coming in and sitting down and how's work going what's anything you want to talk about no no i'm good well have some probing questions what did you what have you been working on this week how's this project going what's going on here start to drive the conversation that's part of your job as manager don't wait for the person to bring the problem to you try to suss out if there is a problem that they're not talking about that's part of your job so those are the things that habits i learned uh from wonderful managers i had thank you for sharing and uh thank you for being so pragmatic about them um one thing that came to my mind um from earlier in our conversation you know that um maybe we could call it mistake tolerance um when it comes to teams and and uh making it okay to make mistakes and you know actually like own up to your mistakes because it doesn't you know come out of your salary or anything like that um is there a way that you can share with us uh to build mistake tolerance into development or into the work that we do in IT Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, you know, I'll take uh, some examples. Uh, you know, I think that there's process we can use and technology we can use to help 
But let me give some examples of like mistakes I made. Uh, you know, one of one of one example I always tell like new people to try and just kind of hammer home. It's okay to put your hand in the air and be like, "Wow, did I screw that up?" I made I've made mistakes in my career that are you know just colossal. Like I did one time at BlackRock, I crashed the entire email server on like my my third week at the company, uh, brought the entire thing down. Uh, I made a thirty thousand dollar mistake on Google Cloud uh, when I was trying something out. Fortunately, was able to get a refund, <laughs> a refund on it. But like when I saw that when I saw that charge appear, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that was totally me! I screwed that up!" And immediately said, "This is all, this is me! I messed this up! This is what happened!" So that we can you know try to avoid it happening again. You just got to be vocal about that stuff in terms of like process and uh, and tolerance. I think it's really just about like making sure that like the development environments that you put people in have those safety nets. Right. Again, there's a reason we have three tier structures. There's a reason we have a dev environment, a test environment, a prod environment in most organizations. Nothing new there. But you got to make sure that like they actually work and are functional. One of the things that happens with a dev environment versus a prod environment is they tend to drift farther and farther and farther apart. It takes real hard work and dedicated people to keep that dev environment actually like reflecting reality. Right. Um, so you know, certainly one of the things I saw at BlackRock that I thought was really effective was like regular refreshes, you know, of the entire database, things like that, that had no regard, you know, kind of for like what the project, what project was being worked on. That type of forcible approach does a couple things. One, it says, okay, this isn't even ready for dev yet. This is still something I'm working on in my own private environment, and I'll publish it to dev when I'm in a more stable state. Uh, you know, so it's, there's, there's practical things you can do, but I think that the the main thing is just tone setting, all right? Every time I make a mistake, I make sure to, you know, kind of mention it. I do a lot of pairing, you know, kind of with new programmers. They can see the mistakes I'm making line by line as I go, that I'm fixing as I go. So they can see that like, hey, it's, this is, this is, an, this is a job that requires you to, to mess up. There's one of the wonderful thing about programming is versus other types of engineering, software engineering versus other types of engineering. If I build a bridge and I get the bridge wrong, when the bridge collapses, it's like a really big deal. But when I'm first trying to experiment and build something in software, I did Frederick Brooks, you know, had that wonderful thing, the software, the, you know, the programmer builds castles in the sky, like the poet. Um, that's very true because you can really quickly iterate. You don't need to get everything. Like you made the analogy earlier about putting somebody on the moon, very different task, right, than trying to build a piece of software. You're allowed to make mistakes. The nature of software development encourages mistakes. Go ahead and try it, see if it runs. And if it doesn't, like, you know, we try again. Iteration is just so fast in software versus a lot of other disciplines. It's one of the things I really like about it. And you're not going to learn to iterate if you're trying to make the perfect thing out of the gate. It's better to make a really crummy thing and then start to iterate on it and make it better, I think. Um, there might be people who disagree with that, depending on what you're building. But I'm always a fan of like building, making something, getting it out there, and then iterating the heck out of it uh, versus the versus the alternative of making it perfect on day one. Thank you. I, I completely agree with you. And also, if you don't put things out there, then you can't get feedback by definition on it. And uh, so you're not going to be able to, you know, have many eyes and spot the mistakes that you might not have spotted before. I think we're approaching uh, the end of our time. And 
um, we have talked about um, a plethora of things when it comes to work culture. A few things that stood out to me um, are the following. I think you mentioned that it's very important to to build relationships, to have your regular one-on-ones, to carve out the time to to make sure that we know the people that we are working with. And so we have the report to actually give feedback and and not just be nice. And I also really loved how you put vulnerability out there, which I only think is possible when you have a culture that is based on trust and integrity of the people that you work with. And when it comes to integrity, I also thought um, that your point about raising your hand when you make mistakes is is very important and showing that as an example in a company is quite beneficial because other people will see your example and they will also be able to raise their hand and not you know try to try to make sure that people don't know when they made a mistake and and that's especially hurtful when it comes out later and you know people trace back the mistake and um why didn't you say something so so also i thought your point about rules and how you know software development has processes for a reason and making sure your tests don't fail for the sake of deploying on time is something that I will for sure use from now on uh, because because those rules are there for a reason, but it's also okay to take risks when you see that those risks are for the betterment of the product or for the project or for the team. And, and it's not always so black and white, but I think our conversation has shed some light on what are the the differences between those situations. Is there anything else that you would like to add to our conversation or something that I have uh, missed, but you think is important? I think that, uh, well, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you for like really good questions. You, 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 you made me think of a lot of things, you know, as I was saying them with those questions. And I thought that was great. And the other thing, you know, we talked about it earlier. We learn from our mistakes, but we also learn from our successes. And I think sometimes to the point of vulnerability, we can learn the wrong things from our successes, right? If short-term successes can be intoxicating. Um, long-term success takes a lot of discipline and it's harder. And it goes to your point about like the deadline, right? That's a short-term success potentially. Okay, we delivered on Friday on time. But what did we learn? How did we improve ourselves as an organization? We actually made ourselves worse in the example that we talked about, right? Where we just kind of blew through this test, changed the way the test works so it just passed on the continuous integration system and moved on with our lives so we delivered on time. That success, that perceived success actually made us worse. And so it's possible to learn the wrong lessons from success if you're not looking at it over a longer time horizon. So that's the thing I'd say. The other reason I say vulnerability all the time is because vulnerability is scary. Good feedback can be scary. Receiving good feedback can be scary. Giving important feedback can be scary. You don't sometimes want to hurt people's feelings or things like that, but sometimes you have to be vulnerable enough to tell people this this thing needs to change or this thing needs to improve. 
it's easy to tell people when they're doing a good job. It's harder to tell people when they need to change things about the about what they're doing. And so like, but you have to come at it with a view of empathy and vulnerability that like, yeah, this is a scary thing to say. This is probably a scary thing to hear, but I think you can get, you know, we can get there. And that's, that's why you have to have those conversations frequently. Having a, having a conversation once a quarter with a report and telling them they're doing everything wrong, that's not helpful. It's not enough time. It's not enough opportunity for them to, to pivot. It's not enough opportunity for them to learn from you. And isn't that what you want? Before we wrap up, please tell me where can our listeners follow you or your work or the company? The only social media I really engage in in any kind of way is LinkedIn. I know that's such a corporate thing to say, but I don't. Uh, but I don't get I don't get too involved in the other social media uh, platforms. I, I do I do look at my LinkedIn because it's it's, a, it's an interesting opportunity to meet new people, especially people on you know kind of in their in the in the early stage of their careers in particular. So feel free to try to, to feel free to send me a connect on uh, LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk to people. Uh, as far as the company I'm at right now. Check out recurve.com. If you want to contribute to some of the, uh, you know, kind of weights and measures we use to measure energy efficiency, all that's open source. We've got a very thriving open source community around the measurement aspect of what we do. Uh, check out caltrack.org or check out Linux Foundation Energy. Uh, and you can see us there, the open EE meter. Uh, if you're interested in how the calculations themselves work, it's all there. So wow. that's, that's it. And, and, and I hope it would be really cool to see some people join and, you know, kind of contribute there. It's always, it's always fun to meet new people through that avenue. Oh, for sure. For sure. Thank you so much for, for sharing uh, what you thought about uh, company culture and the healthy company culture. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation today. And to our listeners and watchers, today, my guest was David Yeager, the Director of Data Infrastructure at Recurve. And we talked about how company cultures can really benefit the business and how we can all make sure to be a really healthy part of company culture. I thank you for your attention today. I am Carolina Toth, and this is Level Up Engineering, and I hope to see you next time. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time. See you next time.